Welcome to Peed Soup. I'm your host, Jim McCarthy, and on this episode, we're going to talk about one of the most common issues in pediatrics, ear infections. A study in 1989 estimated that by age 3, 80% of kids will have at least one episode of acute otitis media. That number's probably lower now because of the pneumococcal vaccine and more strict diagnostic criteria, but otitis media is still one of the most common reasons for kids to be prescribed antibiotics. We'll start with some background. When you look at a healthy kid's ear, the tympanic membrane will look translucent and pearly gray. It's not quite perfectly clear. It's sometimes described as ground glass, but at this point I've heard that term used for so many different things in medicine that it's lost all meaning. I think wax paper or cellophane is a better description. They aren't perfect either, but you get the general idea. The middle ear drains into the pharynx through the eustachian tube. If that drainage slows down, the fluid collects in the middle ear and an infection can settle in. Usually this happens after an upper respiratory infection causes swelling in and around the eustachian tube, which is why ear infections usually seem to start with a cold. Younger kids are also set up for trouble because their eustachian tubes are more horizontally aligned, so even when they're perfectly healthy, their middle ears drain less efficiently. As kids grow, the tubes get more angled, making ear infections less common the older a patient is. For diagnosis and management, we're mainly going off of the most recent guidelines from the American Academy of Pediatrics, which were published in 2013. Since we're using their guidelines, we should also mention a few of their definitions. Acute otitis media, a true ear infection, is defined as the rapid onset of signs and symptoms of inflammation in the middle ear. It's different from otitis media with effusion, inflammation and fluid in the middle ear without acute infection, and from middle ear effusion, which is a blanket term for any fluid in the middle ear. Uncomplicated otitis media is an infection without any discharge from the ear. Severe acute otitis has moderate to severe pain and a fever of 39 Celsius or 102.2 Fahrenheit or higher. Finally, recurrent acute otitis media is defined as three separate physician-diagnosed episodes in a six-month span or four or more episodes in a year with at least one of them in the last six months. The symptoms of ear infections can be pretty nonspecific. Older kids will often complain of sudden-onset ear pain, but pre-verbal kids might pull or hold on their ears or just be more fussy than usual. Studies have shown that a symptom checklist isn't too helpful for ruling otitis in or out, so the diagnosis is based on your clinical findings. The AAP recommends diagnosing acute otitis media if there's moderate to severe bulging of the tympanic membrane or new onset of drainage that's not caused by otitis externa. There's also a weaker recommendation to diagnose if there's mild bulging in either the onset of ear pain within the last 48 hours or intense redness of the eardrum. The main takeaway is that a middle ear effusion is key to diagnosing acute otitis. The other parts of the criteria, the redness, pain, or drainage, are signs of inflammation that are meant to help separate acute otitis media from otitis media with effusion, which doesn't benefit from treatment with antibiotics. Before we get to the antibiotic regimens, it's important to mention pain management. Pain is the primary symptom of an ear infection, and antibiotics don't really help in the first 24 hours, and might not do much for 3 to 7 days. So what do you do? As with everything with kids, and adults for that matter, Tylenol and ibuprofen should be the first line for pain management. There's not really any evidence that distraction or hot or cold compresses do much, but they are pretty low risk, so if they seem to work, go for it. Studies have also shown that topical anesthetics like lidocaine drops have only a limited benefit, and only in kids older than 5. The best thing you can do is make sure that you have the right dosage of Tylenol and ibuprofen prescribed and reassure the parents that it will get better soon. Treatment recommendations are where there are some of the biggest changes in the newer guidelines. 
Older recommendations were to prescribe antibiotics for anyone 24 months or younger, but studies have shown that in the majority of cases, otitis will resolve on its own and it's okay to observe for a few days before prescribing. Who does get antibiotics right away? The AAP says you should treat kids with severe otitis, remember that means moderate or severe pain and a fever of 102.2 or higher, or children under 24 months without severe symptoms who have bilateral acute otitis. For everyone else, the kids without severe symptoms and the ones under 24 months with unilateral otitis, you can hold off on treatment as long as there's a mechanism in place to make sure they can start antibiotics if the symptoms haven't improved in 48 to 72 hours. Like I mentioned, the reason for the shift is new data about the natural course of acute otitis media. A Cochrane review initially published in 2004 and updated in 2015 found that most cases resolve spontaneously. Antibiotics had the biggest benefit for kids under 2 years old with bilateral otitis media, where the number needed to treat was just 4. That's why it's included almost word for word in the guideline. Some kids who qualify for observation do need treatment, but several studies have pretty consistently shown that only about 1 in 3 kids end up needing the rescue antibiotic. Observation also doesn't increase the risk of complications. That same Cochrane review showed no difference in the number of children with abnormal tympanometry findings at 3 months, and there was also no difference in the number of late recurrences comparing antibiotic treatment to placebo. There was a study published in Pediatrics in 2009 by Paula Thompson and her colleagues that showed antibiotic treatment decreased the risk of mastoiditis, but the number needed to treat to prevent a single case of mastoiditis was about 4,800. When you do prescribe antibiotics, amoxicillin is generally the way to go. The AAP says that as long as the child hasn't taken amoxicillin in the last 30 days and doesn't have purulent conjunctivitis along with their otitis, amoxicillin is the treatment of choice. If your patient has had amoxicillin recently, has goopy eyes, or a history of recurrent acute otitis media resistant to amoxicillin, the recommendation is to add beta-lactamase coverage and prescribe amoxicillin clavulanate. Amoxicillin is great because it's cheap, safe, has a narrow spectrum to avoid breeding resistance, and, most importantly for pediatrics, tastes pretty good. My sister and I both had a lot of ear infections growing up, and we were never mad about having to take the pink stuff. Some patients don't fit perfectly into the guidelines, but it still isn't too complicated. If your patient has a penicillin allergy, studies have shown that there's a low rate of cross-reactivity with cephalosporins, so ceftonir and cefuroxime are generally considered safe. The AAP guideline also doesn't give recommendations for kids with a perforated eardrum or who already have tympanostomy tubes. If your patient has acute otitis with a perforation, the recommendation is still to treat with oral amoxicillin, not with eardrops or other topical treatment. If your patient has tubes and an ear infection, which usually shows up as drainage from the ear, the treatment depends on the symptoms. If the ear drainage is the only symptom, the treatment is drops, usually a combination of a fluoroquinolone and a steroid. For patients with fever or other systemic symptoms, signs of cellulitis, severe pain, or any conditions that compromise their immune system, it still comes back to amoxicillin or augmentin. The treatments for otitis are effective enough that the complications have gotten to be pretty rare. It's normal to have a persistent middle ear effusion even after completing a course of antibiotics. Up to a quarter of kids still have an effusion three months after treatment, which can cause some difficulty with hearing. The best thing to do is make sure the child has a seat in the classroom where he or she can hear as well as possible until the effusion resolves. A cholesteatoma is another complication worth mentioning that's most likely to develop in patients who have had repeated episodes of acute otitis. 
The cycle of developing and resolving effusions can create pockets in the eardrum that extend into the middle ear. When the squamous cells that make up the eardrum start growing, dividing, desquamating, and producing keratin in these pockets, it creates a cholesteatoma. On exams, you'll usually get the history of recurrent infections, along with a white round mass behind the TM and persistent ear drainage that hasn't improved with antibiotics. Anytime you see a cholesteatoma, the answer is to refer to ENT for surgery. Cholesteatomas aren't exactly tumors and definitely aren't malignant, but they can continue to grow and cause damage to the middle ear and the surrounding structures. The most serious complication of otitis media is mastoiditis. The mastoid air cells are connected to the middle ear by a small channel called the adidas ad antrum. Please don't remember the name, just know that it exists. Because of the connected lining, it's normal for there to be inflammation in the mastoid during a bout of acute otitis media. It doesn't turn into a problem unless that connection is blocked and the inflammation and fluid get trapped. If that sounds familiar, it should. It's pretty much the same process that happens with eustachian tubes in developing acute otitis. Mastoiditis can develop anywhere from days to weeks after a diagnosis of acute otitis. The tympanic membrane usually looks normal, but the patient will have swelling, redness, and tenderness behind their ear. On your exams, look out for an ear described as being displaced upward and outward because of the swelling behind it. When you suspect mastoiditis, you should get a CT scan to verify the diagnosis and to look for any extension of infection into the temporal bone or even intracranially. The CT will also let you know if there's a subperiosteal abscess to worry about. Mastoiditis is another automatic referral to ENT, at the very least to get an aspirate of the fluid to send for culture. Initial medical treatment is a third-generation cephalosporin plus clindamycin. The reason for the difference from acute otitis treatment is the higher rate of staph aureus and group A strep in mastoiditis. Patients with mastoiditis usually end up needing around four weeks of antibiotics, although the exact regimen can be tailored depending on what grows on the culture. Getting back to acute otitis, the last things to discuss are treatment failure and recurrence. After you start your patient on antibiotics, there should be some improvement in 48 to 72 hours. If there isn't, getting some more history and repeating the exam to look for changes in the signs of inflammation is a good place to start. If the symptoms aren't turning around as quickly as you'd like, but are still tolerable, or if you think there's something viral going on at the same time as the otitis, you might not need to change your treatment. But if the symptoms are severe and there hasn't been any change in the exam, it's probably time to think about making a change. If you started with amoxicillin, the next step is augmentin. If your patient was already on augmentin or an oral cephalosporin, a dose of intramuscular ceftriaxone will usually take care of things. When it comes to recurrence, any parent will tell you that most kids are going to have more than one ear infection, but that doesn't mean it's true recurrent otitis media. Remember, the definition of recurrent otitis is three episodes in six months, or four in a year with one in the last six months. For those cases, there isn't any evidence to support prescribing prophylactic antibiotics to reduce the frequency of recurrence. The old standby treatment for recurrent otitis hasn't changed since I was a kid. It's putting in tympanostomy tubes. A 2008 Cochrane review found that kids with tubes had an average of 1.5 fewer episodes of acute otitis in the six months after surgery, which is a decent reduction considering these kids had three episodes in six months or four episodes in a year. There are risks to any surgery, but studies have shown that tubes do improve quality of life for patients and their parents. And that's acute otitis media. The 2013 AAP guideline is a great resource going forward, but for take-home points, remember that you shouldn't diagnose acute otitis unless there's an effusion and signs of inflammation. 
If the kid doesn't have severe symptoms or is under two with unilateral otitis, it's an option to observe for up to three days before prescribing antibiotics as long as there's a system in place to get a rescue prescription. Amoxicillin and Augmentin are the mainstays for treatment and watch out for swelling and pain behind the ear to tip you off about mastoiditis. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please give us a rating on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you have comments or if there's something you'd like to hear about in a future episode, you can email us directly at pedsoup, that's P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P, at gmail.com. I'm Jim McCarthy, and we'll be back next time with more Peds Soup.